This is Ethios with Bemnati Meskin from ethiospodcast.com. Ethios is a podcast that chronicles the lives and accomplishments of people of Ethiopian heritage and Ethiopian influence around the world. It's about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what inspires them. This week I caught up with Han Nakabeda, an artist, philanthropist, and entrepreneur. She's playing the piano and her tears are just flowing down her face. And I was just silently sitting there listening to her music and crying with her. That I remember all the time. Hanna Kabeda has worked as a consultant in capacity building for international development projects and worked in more than a dozen countries in Africa, Europe and Asia. She has worked in the capacity building sector on projects for the United Nations, where she has structured and designed entrepreneur training projects in Bulgaria, civil services workforce training in East Timor, and global surface transport and port operations logistics training for WFP in Rome. Hanna identified and brokered the release of Ethiopiques 21, which is an original composition and performance by her aunt, Mahoyt Mariam Gabru. Hanna is also the CEO and founder of Mahoyt Mariam Music Foundation in Virginia. The foundation gives children in low-income sector brackets access to music education as a way of extending Mahoyt's legacy. The foundation has given music scholarships to promising students through the Music Link Foundation, as well as supported other nonprofits like the Wagane Foundation. Hanna is in the first phase of producing a documentary film on Mahoyt Mariam. Hanna joins us today from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Hanna. Thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for making the time. So let's jump right into it. Tell us, tell us about your childhood and, and uh, where you were raised. I grew up in Ethiopia until I finished 12th grade. I went to Nazareth school. Well, m- most of my life since uh, fourth grade. Um, and then after I graduated, I came to the U.S. Uh, for college. Uh, started out in Ethica College, and it was too small for me. I really wanted to experience, you know, university life, so I ended up in Washington State, uh, Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Oh, wow. So where where were you raised in Ethiopia? What neighborhood? Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa. Where yeah. not? Um, I'm mostly Floha. Uh, my early childhood was mostly in Floha. My parents moved around a lot because uh, my father was in the army. So as a result of that, um, well, I don't know if it's because he was in the army or because he took a lot of uh, positions as an administrator, but we were they were always traveling so whenever they came back we ended up changing you know neighborhoods but most years i was in floha um, grew up in kazanchis a little bit uh, a little bit near tiit fabrica you know, different places well, what was your childhood like what was the household like that you grew up in um i didn't have too many siblings just an older brother and a younger sister the three of us um but our parents, especially my mom and her sisters, uh, they had decided they were going to raise their children together. So I grew up with my cousins, so that gave me a very large family. That's great. Yeah. That's great. 
So what, what did you pursue in your um, studies? Um, you mean in college? Yes. Uh, I studied sociology uh, and I minored in psychology. Um, I found out that I was really fascinated with the idea of what makes society work and um, I'm still very passionate about it. And what, what brought you to that decision? What? Well, I kind of meandered to it, actually. Um, I didn't realize that was what I really wanted to do, so I started out as a French major. Really? <laughs> Believe it yeah. or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a long story behind that why I did, but uh, I started out as a French major and because I had studied French in, in Nazareth school since fourth grade up to 12th grade. So I was pretty advanced for a first-year college student. Um, but it dawned on me that if I really wanted to study French, I should be in Europe. I should be in France. <laughs> um, but I wanted to be in the U.S. So I had an instructor. I think it was one of my elective courses uh, in medieval history, Professor uh, Rodney. And I used to go to his office a lot and talk to him and tell him that I was frustrated with my courses and stuff like that. And he's the one who pointed out to me, he said, you seem to me like a person who wants to know more about what makes people tick, what makes society move the way it does. So he suggested that I take Social 101. And that was it. And that was it. That was it. <laughs> and where, where did you study, yourself? Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. And what was that experience like? Oh, well, it was fantastic. First of all, it was uh, the 70s, the early 70s. So uh, it was the student movement. Um, I really took you know, to it. And uh, I learned a lot more outside of the classroom than I did in the classroom, oh, actually, so. because there were demonstrations, there were rallies, there were debates, there were all kinds of activity on campus. Um, professors were very accessible. It wasn't like nowadays where professors are very busy with publishing and working as consultants. They hardly have time for their students. Mm -hmm. At that time, back in the day, professors really engaged with their students. So, you know, at uh, uh, beer halls and places like that, they would come and we would have endless debates and discussions. And there were always rallies. This was the time of the Black Panther Party. It was the time of, uh, you know, opposition to the war in Vietnam. It was the time of the hippie movement. Um, so there was a lot, a lot going on, and I really absorbed it all, and I, I, I was very fascinated by it all and very open to it all. Was there, so was there an Ethiopian community that you were plugged into at that time, or did you find your identity partly in the black African uh, community, or, or what, was, what was the dynamic, like the cultural dynamic? was a very interesting experience, actually. When I was in Ithaca, the first two years I was in Ithaca College, um, my roommate was an African-American student, and I think that's the first time I kind of got introduced to the idea of being black. Um, it had never occurred to me, the topic had never come up, although I had heard in my family that one of my relatives 
who studied in somewhere in the south had gone to a barber shop um, and not knowing that he wasn't supposed to. And so the barber had kind of uh, shaved his head in the middle like a mohawk and told him to get out. That was the only reference I had to being black was a problem somewhere in the U.S. But somehow I, it didn't dawn on me that you know it might be part of my own reality. So um, I had a problem because I couldn't understand the pronunciation of American English at the time. I sort of spoke the Queen's English, so to speak, even though not with a British accent. Um, um, so I tended to gravitate more towards, um, you know, white kids. And my roommate really had a problem with it. And she used to complain to me that, you know, why was I always ha hanging out with Peggy? And Peggy was a white girl and Debbie was not. And uh, so that was the first time I started having this identity issue about where do I belong? Who do I fit in? Um, and then, of course, by the time I moved to Washington State, uh, there was a larger international community. And uh, I was actually uh, there also as an international student scholarship awardee. So that kind of gave me a different space. So fast forward a little bit. Looking at your resume, very impressive. You've done a lot of travel. You've done work in different parts of the world. What was the first step into your career, you know, which, which job or path opened the right doors for you to, to lead that, uh, to start that career? Well, when I first graduated from college, um, my intention was to continue uh, on to graduate school. So I took a job in Astoria, Oregon. Uh, at the time, uh, the Nixon administration had set up uh, what was known as the Job Corps program. And so I was, uh, I had a full-time job as a social counselor. And um, I loved my job, although it was a bit of a risky job because there were a lot of conflicts. Most of the kids we dealt with at the time were uh, kids who had been arrested. And this was sort of like a rehab program. So uh, there were a lot of drugs, there were um, violence, um, and so I was in the midst of all of that, but I was able to relate to the kids because I was I didn't believe in bureaucracy, I was anti-establishment, um, so they could relate to me and, and I, I enjoyed my, my work. But my family wanted me to go to Ethiopia, they felt I was drifting away culturally, um, I was uh, a flower child, which they didn't approve of. And so one letter from my brother <laughs> got me going to Ethiopia. And really? What, 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 what I get into deep, what was the content of that letter? Oh, basically <laughs> that he missed me a lot. Okay, and so because, positive. Yeah, very positive. Okay. He missed me a lot, and he thought it would be a great idea. Why don't I come home for vacation? And that I was drifting away culturally, and it would be nice for me to touch base. And just to set it up, Astoria, Oregon, for people who've never been to that part of the world, 
it's it's a very remote part of Oregon, mm -hmm. central Oregon, south of Portland, which you know I used to live in. Mm -hmm. No diversity, practically none. Right. None. So his concerns were valid, I would say. Right? Yeah, and and he knew the U.S. very well. He had lived here and done his masters and gone back to Ethiopia, so he knew. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so I thought I would take time out, and I took. Uh, leave without pay for three months and decided to go to Ethiopia for a vacation. Well, what turned out to be a vacation turned out to be an eight-year stint because I wasn't allowed to leave the country. The revolution came, and so my life went in a completely different direction. For the best or the worst, or what, what, well, how would you look back at it? Well, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, it was, uh, in one way, it derailed my plans for my career and whatnot, my, my education primarily, but eventually I did get back to graduate school. Um, it gave me an opportunity to see my father, uh, because he died shortly thereafter, um, and it also gave me an opportunity to work in Ethiopia uh, very early on in my career. And what did you do? I had a very beautiful, beautiful uh, experience. I worked all over the country. I worked in 11 regions out of 13. Oh, wow. Um, I lived in tents, and I was a researcher. I lived in villages, and I did basic baseline data. I gathered information on decision-making in the family, uh, status of women, uh, relationships between farmers and landlords, um, just all kinds of stuff that became sort of the foundation for development work. Wow. And do you have any memories that, that really stick out from that time? <sighs> oh, tons of them, yeah. Um, where can I begin? I mean, um, one time I could tell you, uh, this was when we did, uh, I was working with FAO, and uh, we were in Arbaminch um, because we, the sample that we were doing took five, uh, a range of five different levels of development. So we took from the most developed, meaning there are roads, um, there's telephone, there's radio, um, there's, um, you know, modern uh, amenities such as hotels, um, hospitals, schools, um, <clears throat> at least up to uh, finishing high school, all of that, because at that time there was only the university in Addis Ababa and in Alamaya. There were no other universities. So for all of those factors, we took the Jalalo Agricultural Development Unit, Kadu area, where I had worked before this job. Um, and it was a model uh, development project that was funded by the Swedish um, International Development Authority, a bilateral agency. And so that was for the most developed area. Then we took the fifth one was the least developed area, which would be no telephone, no radio, no access by road except just feeder road or not even feeder road. Um, the remotest. So we took, um, and, and of course we went through different levels of investigation to be able to identify the exact district, the exact, you know, hamlet, not even a village, uh, to be able to sample. 
And when we went to Arba Minch, uh, we, we talked to the people at the, you know, um, provincial level and then down to the Auraja and from the Auraja down to the Wereda, the district level. And we found this area called Ubamale, which is an area where the government didn't even have a post office, didn't have a police station. That means they're not part of the grid at all. They don't pay taxes. Um, essentially, they're not really you know, part of the country structurally. So that was the reason we took that, that uh, region. And so we had traveled for three months by mule um, within the region, gathering data to different villages because they are all highland and lowland, so we wanted to sample both both areas. And when we came out, we went back to the Werada, we got rid of the mules, now we have the Land Rover, and we're on our way to Geleb and Hamur Bako when the driver in front of us, there were two cars. One car takes the team. The other car basically carries fuel, uh, tents, you know, cooking gear, things like that. So the vehicle in front of us, the driver, he had had a little bit too much edge. <laughs> and he was driving too fast on this very narrow road on, you know, the left-hand side was the mountain and the right-hand side was a deep gorge. He should have been going very carefully. While he was speeding, he kind of tipped over and almost went, you know, into down the, 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 the summit, you know. So we, the second car, which is where we are, we got stuck and we all got out and the only way we were going to be able to get his car up and going is if we get another vehicle to come with a wench and pull it up while from the one side people are propping it. Anyway, it took several days to get that kind of help from the water resources people who had the only kind of truck with the wench that we needed. And that had to come from Galeb and Hamarbako. And we had to wait until it was a market day when the farmers would be passing by that road to send a messenger. So you could, obviously before... Even cell phones, like I mean, the, it, what? <laughs> There's <laughs> nothing in this area. Nothing. There was no telephone. So you had literally had to wait for yeah, literally. somebody to, have to come by. Human being and, yeah. had to pass by. Yeah, and people don't pass by that that route unless they're going to a marketplace. And so on a Saturday and on a Thursday, there are these big markets where people will be taking their products. And so that's when we found uh, some farmers. And I wrote a note saying, I'm a team leader. I'm the only woman in the team. Uh, I'm the team leader. And uh, of course, that was always a big marvel wherever we went. They couldn't believe that here I am, that a woman could lead a team, and, and they were all men. Um, we were, uh, it was a team of 18 people, including the two drivers, and I was the only female. Um, anyway, so I wrote a note and uh, sent it to the Water uh, Resource Authority. Um, eventually, they came. The, you know, we dug out the car, and by the time we got into Galeb and Hamarbako, it was about 9 o'clock at night. Uh, Galeb itself is a very small hamlet, it's really, but it is considered a town because it has a hotel and, you know, it has a police station and all of that. You can buy a Coke. <laughs> so when we got there, 
the whole town had come out to greet us. We were looked upon like some kind of heroes because we had, you know, this word had traveled that we had been trapped, that there was this woman <laughs> with a bunch of guys who was stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so and and it's during the revolution so of course the, the, you know it had sort of a nationalist kind of uh sense to them that we were these young people working for our country and we had gone through this hardship and survived and uh we were greeted uh with the you know chief of police even being out there with the rest of the population of the town and uh, the only woman who owned uh, sort of a hotel and a brothel offered us her home uh, to, to stay there. And uh, so that's one of the most memorable experiences of how we were greeted and we were treated like heroes. And then we were really, really royally treated. Um, and we were stuck for two weeks because of the weather. Uh, there was... Um, the roads were completely uh, unnavigable. So we stayed for two weeks. We drank a lot of touch. <laughs> <laughs> so you touched briefly upon um, the fact that you were leading a team and, and, and that that was new to a lot of the locals where you were going. Did you, in your career, have you faced a lot of hardships as a woman? Have you, have you noticed that it, it is slightly more difficult to be a to be leading a team and, and to be a woman that's leading a team you know it's funny uh, back in the day in the 70s and 80s when i was working in ethiopia uh, as a professional i didn't uh, face uh, there would be talk behind me but in front of me i didn't face a lot of difficulty um, because I was respected for being a professional. I was respected for having uh, a career in in a man's world, so to speak, because up until that time, most women would be either teachers or nurses. That was the profession. Now, here I am. I'm a researcher. I'm going into the countryside. I'm going with a bunch of guys. I'm sleeping in a tent. You know, I'm uh, basically... Um, risking myself and risking uh, not not in a safe environment. So I think that earned me some kind of respect. So I was treated with a lot of respect and with a lot of compassion uh, from a lot of people, uh, especially uh, women. Uh, they would always uh, come and, you know, give me special treatment. Uh, when I stayed in hotels, they would come into my room and stay with me until I fell asleep. Um, they would do things for me. Um, villagers would bring food. Uh, in fact, I used to always argue with the drivers because I, I had given them strict orders <clears throat> excuse me, not to accept anything um, because, you know, people don't have much and they would bring whatever they had, honey, butter, chicken, anything, you know, and it was their way of showing that they were very grateful. And uh, so the experience was very, very positive for the most part. Tell us about the, you know, where, where, where did your career go after that? Where it seems well, like you, you did, you've accomplished a lot of things. You worked in some very meaningful places in, in a capacity that that looked like you've made a significant impact. So t tell us a little bit about what you've done since 
Yeah, it, it, things kind of just uh, had a natural progression. Because of this FAO study, which came out in three volumes, and it was basically an evaluation of the land reform in Ethiopia, which had taken place uh, after the revolution. Um, so it had covered, you know, uh, the settlement program. It had covered the status of women and how it impacted, uh, how the land reform impacted the, the, the status of women because uh, the, the law itself had many uh, issues with how it treated women, um, giving them access to property and that sort of thing. Um, at any rate, um, when that study came out, uh, I was offered a job at UNDP. And by this time, we're talking about now 1979. And when UNDP offered me a job uh, to come on board as a full-time staff member, as a program officer, I honestly did not want to take it because I didn't like the idea of being stuck in an office. I loved, I liked being in the field. I liked working directly with people. And even though I was a researcher, I did a lot of work outside of my scope of, uh, you know, my area of competence. For instance, if we encountered uh, disease of uh, plants, um, like, say, insect plantation uh, or some kind of grain, uh, the farmers would give us uh, samples. We would take that to a laboratory and ask them to please identify the disease. We would help in many different ways. Um, if people suffered from malaria, we would try and get medicine. Um, so we kind of became a conduits to many other different um, needs being met or, or at least being made visible to the central government or to the higher-up authorities. So it gave me a lot of meaning to do that kind of work, and I didn't like the idea of being stuck in an office, but uh, because it was, you know, the Red Terror, it was after the Red Terror, this was 79, um, but I had already gone through that period and, and uh, um, life really seemed very kind of tenuous at the time, um, I wanted to leave the country like anybody else, and I felt that that position would really be ultimately my way out. Um, so I took the job, and, um, and but funny enough, even though that's how I ended up into it, it became sort of a career for a very, very long term, um, because a lot of the uh, capacity building work that I did internationally was through the UN system. Uh, I worked for nine of the different UN agencies, uh, and then by extension, I got you know, exposed or known among other international organizations like the African Development Bank um, and also other international nonprofits like Oxfam America and, uh, you know, several others. So that's how my career took off. But uh, ultimately, I still ended up jumping off that cliff and, uh, you know, went off on a different uh you know, exploration of my own creative interest, um, picked up my art, and uh, do the foundation. So tell, tell us about both the art, the painting that you do, as well as the foundation. Well, my artwork is it's still at the level of a pet project so far, but, but, but I hope to, to, you know, advance it more and more. Um, I certainly do it all the time, and I love it. When did it. you start painting? 
Um, well, I, I'm more of a Zentanglist. Have you heard of art, an art genre called Zentangle? Never have. Well, I didn't know that that's what it was called up until, you know, very recently, like a three years ago or so. But anyway, it is, it's, it's sort of, for me, you know, I don't think about what I do. I sit down and my hands will just want to draw and I will draw. And when it's finished, there is something definite. Um, sometimes it's like a little vignette and sometimes uh, it could be a single, um, you know, uh, item or sometimes it could be many different things within, within you know, an image. So, um, so it's more like drawing, but from there is where I then went to explore uh, painting. When I was in New York, I lived in New York for about 25 years before I moved to the D.C. area. And when I was in New York, I used to go to the Art Student League. And I did uh, figure drawing for three years there. And one professor with whom I studied for very many years, um, for a long time, he looked at my, he asked me one time, why are you you know, coming and doing this. And I said, because I thought I have to know form. I have to study form. He said, well, you know form. Why do you keep doing it? And he said, what kind of art do you do at home? So I didn't know how to describe it. I just told him, it's just drawing, you know. And he said, bring me your portfolio. I'd like to take a look. So I brought it in and I showed it to him. And he had some suggestions about color. He said, you know, definitely would be much more powerful if you did color. And he's the one who kind of instilled the idea of painting. Um, but he said, you have your own style. As a matter of fact, to quote him directly, he said, style is your destiny, <laughs> is what he said. And he said, you seem to have your own style, so I think you should just go and do your thing. So that's what I do. You know, I just... Uh, do my Zentangle and paint it. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and about your foundation, when when was the foundation born? And uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, the foundation was born... Um, What's the name of the foundation? The Imahois Gemariam Music Foundation. Imahois Gemariam is a musician. A very famous aunt of yours. And so for those who might not know, who, sh who should know about her, give us, give us some background of, of who she is and and uh, why people should know her. She's a nun. Uh, she's a musician. Um, she composed, uh, she has composed a lot of music, um, and her music was first published in the 70s. I think 1973 was her first album, was published in Germany uh, in vinyl. Um, but she became famous when her music was published by Buddha Music in the Ethiopic series. It's the Ethiopic number 21 CD. And uh, that was the first time when her music was really heard worldwide, you know, and people all over the world responded to it with just tremendous love and enthusiasm. And she has fans from everywhere um, and of all ages, all cross-section uh, of society. Um, so that's how she became famous. Uh, she has lived in a monastery. She lives in Jerusalem, in Israel, and she has lived there for 30 years now. Um, and uh, how the foundation came about is back in 97, before Buddha music, that is, 
um, she had lost two of her sisters, and um, she and I had been in touch very, very, very randomly prior to that. Um, but she was in touch with her sisters, one of them being my mom and another aunt of ours, uh, Tia Gannett. And when both of them died, they died sort of uh, within six months apart, um, she was devastated. And she went into a hunger strike, and she she was really, really upset, I mean, really destroyed by it. And uh, so she wrote me a letter, um, and with the letter came a CD that she had published herself. And um, I'll never forget it. I mean, I was on the Upper West Side on Broadway reading this letter, and here's the, the CD that fell out of the package. I had gone and picked it up from the post office. I'm on my way, and I'm reading it, and, and the letter was like, you know, I'm a nun. I don't care about anything. I've never owned anything. Um, I'm, I've lost my two sisters. Next is me. I'm probably going to die very soon. And um, um, the monastery does not, uh, is not going to, take care about my music take care of my music it's not they don't care about my music nobody does and the only thing that's really breaking my heart is the work that i have done all my life by candlelight and in all kinds of circumstances i have written all this music and now what's going to become of it and could you please help me this was the letter and so the help that she was asking me was to publish that CD that she had published in 300 copies. There were two orders. One was, could I sell the 300 copies? And two was, could I have it published, reissued in 10,000 copies? So... Um, what year is this, just so we can put 90, that? 98, I think 98. it was. Yeah, because mom died in 97, yeah, six months later. Yeah, it's. I think it's either early 98 or late 97. Mm-hmm. It's thereabouts. And she recorded the CD while she was in Israel? In Jerusalem, in, in Israel, Israel, yeah. <clears throat> and um, I was just totally floored to know that Here's a person who lives in a monastery, completely isolated, not in society, doesn't have any resources, doesn't have access to anything, and she had published a CD. I lived in New York City, and I hadn't done squat, you know? <laughs> so I thought, this is just incredible. It really, really just um, amazed me and and moved me that I decided I have to help her. So I got up and I just went to see her in Jerusalem. And I spent some time with her and she handed everything to me. She gave me power of attorney. She um, gave me all her music, the unpublished music. She said, you know, you have to publish this. She had all kinds of I wouldn't call them orders, requests, <laughs> for me to, to, to do with the music because that's her passion and that's her life's work. So I said, you know, I will, I will try. I, I took the 300 CD. I said, I will try and sell this for you, and I will try and find somebody to, bubble it, to publish, you know, uh, the 10,000 copies. It took me, it took five years to get 
to Ethiopic CD21. It took at least three years to find Buddha music. I went through all, all sorts of sources, uh, including Harvard University Music School. I mean, I went everywhere um, to, to get people to publish it. But the reaction was, oh, this is not rock and roll. Oh, this is done. Oh, we don't know what genre this falls in. And it was probably because she wasn't famous yet or what. I don't know. But... I didn't get the, 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 the connection that I needed until I finally found Francis Falsetto, who uh, was, uh, you know, publishing artists out of Ethiopia. And <clears throat> so when I sent it to him, I sent him the CD, he said, oh, I had heard about her. I was interested, you know, in her. And um, he, he listened to it, and then he said, yeah, I'm going to queue it up, and we're going to publish it. Um, CD21 came out. It was published. And then, of course, because Buddha Music had already published several other uh, artists before her, and they already had you know, marketing and so on, I think it gave her the kind of visibility that she needed. Um, so that's how she. So then uh, the next thing was, um, I said to her uh, when I went to visit her the second time, I said to her, "Now your music is published. Um, I will found a foundation in your name so that we can extend your legacy." So that's how the foundation came about. And what does the foundation do? The foundation basically gives access to children uh, who cannot afford it. It gives them access to music education. What types of music education? Um, right now, it's mostly piano and guitar and percussion uh, instruments. Um, we have all kinds of plans in the foundation. We have big plans, but right now, and we're taking baby steps, and uh, what we do is we fund music scholarship for uh, classical uh, piano students. Uh, we have music camp uh, for kids. Uh, I mean, we start at six years of age. And right now we have 30 kids coming up this summer. Uh, most of them are going to be studying piano and uh, guitar. Uh, but we also cover music reading, music appreciation. We cover rhythm and movement. Uh, so uh, it gives them a really good foundation for when they go back to school. And one of the things that I learned about uh, uh, music education in the United States is that in the schools, even though music education is free, it is geared more towards band and so kids who have uh, talent and passion for uh, uh, classical music especially, uh, they benefit only if their parents could afford to pay for private lessons. Mm -hmm. The kids whose families cannot afford private lessons don't get that chance. So that's where the foundation is stepping in and giving children with that kind of talent and passion the possibility to pursue their dream. So how did she feel about the foundation when you first told her about it? Very happy about it, absolutely, because from the very first time when she uh, published her vinyl and she had subsequently published two others, um, she had 
put the money towards um, orphanages. Um, so she always wanted to help children. Oh, so she gave it away? She always gives her money away. Wow. Uh, and then when CD21 came out, uh, she wanted to give it to the church in Jerusalem uh, to repair a church in Jericho. Uh, she gave it to the monastery in Jerusalem. This, this, this is the same repair. church that didn't want her to practice her music? Yes, or? <laughs> yes. Yes, um, it's a cultural it's a cultural disconnect. Of course, and yeah. You once in a in a recent video that I saw, you said, and I'm going to quote you here. You said, um, you said conducting the two conflicting pursuits is where her character, the character of Mahoy shines, mm -hmm. meaning the two pursuits of music, uh, music and religion. And religion. Mm -hmm. How did she cope with that? <laughs> uh, because they do seem like they are two conflicting worlds. Oh, absolutely. Um, and especially within the context of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, I wouldn't say it, but I would say it. Um, I have observed it. I have known her. Um, it has been very difficult for her because, first of all, the piano is not an Ethiopian instrument, as you know very well. It's a Western instrument. Secondly, being a nun uh, within the Orthodox uh, religion, especially the Ethiopian Orthodox religion, I don't know much about the others to speak about it, but I know within the Ethiopian Orthodox religion, when you become a nun or a monk, it means you renounce your life. You renounce any kind of worldly life. So you do not play music. You do not listen to music. So for her to actually insist upon playing music while pursuing being a nun was definitely going sort of against the grain. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she, she definitely opened a completely different uh, uh, avenue uh, for other nuns or or monks, that you could do something for which you have talent, um, for which you have training, for which you have passion, for which you are grateful to serve God because God gave you that gift. This is the way she... And she seemed to be using her gift to give back. It wasn't... It, it seemed, And it also seemed to be a form of worship. And I, I might be seeing this wrong, but when you do listen to her music, it doesn't seem like it's secular music it, it does seem to have a spiritual kind of you can tell that it's a very personal type of music absolutely i'm gonna actually play a clip from one of her most famous probably her most recognized song the homeless wanderer mm -hmm. which is considered a masterpiece by a lot of musicians mm -hmm. so have a listen here Thank you. 
So it definitely seems that her music wasn't secular. It wasn't uh, music that went uh, was against God or was very worldly, right? And you know, how did she how did she see her music? Is is it is it how I see it and how I interpret it, or was it different? Oh, absolutely. And and here I would like to um, say something that probably most people do not know, and um, I don't think it was covered in the uh, Ethiopic series, is that Mohai spent quite a bit of time studying Mahlet. Mahlet is a particular type of church music, which is um, which the priests. Um, they're like hymns, correct? They're hymns, yeah. They're like hymns, but it's a yeah, it's a chant and a hymn. It's it's a part of a service of uh, which particularly happens between midnight and five a.m. It's a worship service. It's a worship service, and so Amoy spent years, um, not just attending the service, but studying Mahalit and interpreting it into classical music. And so she has written a lot of musical scores that have not yet been published uh, that are very typically religious within the religious domain. Uh, so you, you are absolutely right, yeah. Where does she learn music? She studied in Switzerland. Um, the early years of her music uh, education was Switzerland, and then later on she studied some more in Egypt uh, under a Polish master uh, by the name of Kontorowicz. Um, and then uh, she had to interrupt that and return to Ethiopia because uh, the heat in, in, in uh, Cairo was too much for her. She said she had health issues. She had to go back to Ethiopia. And uh, then her her music uh, education was interrupted, and that's when she kind of, you know, decided she was going to pursue a religious life. And so, in in w the research that I did, she seemed to have come from a fairly privileged family, so the choice to go into nunhood or into the monastery did that did her background affect her decision? And do you know what what the reasons were that led her to become a nun? Um, as far as the reasons are concerned, uh, what she has told me herself um, is that when uh, she could not leave the country to go pursue um, her education uh, to further her music, um, to become a concert pianist, which was her dream. Um, she was devastated and she fell ill. And while she fell ill, um, she, I don't know if she had too much fever or what, but she seemed to have had some sort of a vision where she felt that God was calling her. And that was the impetus to her decision to become a nun. However, when she had made that decision, she did not share that decision with her family. She, she knew they were going to be deeply disapproving and would try to talk her out of it. So she basically ran away and became a nun. And they could not find her uh, for quite a long time because she went into the Gishan Monastery, which was an extremely secluded, very far away place. Um, 
and they didn't, uh, and, and of course the priests did not come and tell her family. Um, that only came about when, again, she fell ill, uh, because imagine just the, 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 the extreme conditions under which she had to live, coming from a, a very comfortable and privileged lifestyle. Now she was uh, hauling water on her back, she was um, grinding grain, she was cooking, she was doing everything um, at the level of a, of a rural village. And uh, it's only natural that I guess eventually her body you know, spoke out and she became very, very ill. At which point uh, one of the priests then came to Addis Ababa and told her family that um, they better do something, that she was very ill. So my aunt Tia Gannett then went to Gishan to get her. And uh, from what the Mohai tells me, she stayed with her for many, many days, sleeping on the floor, begging and pleading until Mohai finally agreed to come to Addis. What were your earliest memories of her? One memory that's really etched in my mind is um, I was in her room uh, while she was playing the piano and there was a sofa by the wall where I used to sit and her back was turned to me and there's a window in front of her. She's playing the piano and her tears are just flowing down her face and I was just silently sitting there listening to her music and crying with her. That I remember all the time. Wow. How old are you? Do you remember? I don't know, maybe, maybe 12, 13, thereabouts. What was she like as a person? She spent a lot of time by herself, for sure. Uh, she was very incessant with her practice. I heard somewhere that she would pray for six to nine hours a day. Is this, is this true? or? Well, she, like I said, like when she goes to, you know, to, to service, she might go like six o'clock in the evening and we'll be there all through the night until the morning. And we're talking about standing, uh, you know, because she would be standing all that time. Um, at home, she was most of the time in her room. She would be playing the piano or writing her music. Um, occasionally, she will, you know, uh, visit with her family, with her sisters. She'd come out her house or she'd go to my aunt's house or should uh, come and join the family in the living room at my grandmother's occasionally. But most of the time she stayed to herself. There was a time when she was a teacher and it was a fun time for us because we used to go spend Saturdays with her. Uh, this was the, a school of the blind, I think it was. Uh, I think it was, yeah, the school of the blind. And um, she had her own home, so she would used to make pasta for us, and mm -hmm. we would have, and then she'd buy us Coke and candy, and she, she was very nice to us as kids. And how, how old is she now? She's, she's 93. 93, and very functional still? Oh, yeah. She's very functional. She still plays the piano. Um, she, uh, you know, she's very curious. She always wants to learn new stuff. 
she's completely wired. If you go into her room, she has laptops and printer. Does she have an email address? <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she has email. She used to have a Facebook account. You're kidding me. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. It is amazing. So tell us, tell us about this project that you're working on. Yeah, so the uh, documentary film on Mahoy, you know, we want to uh, take advantage of the opportunity we have, which is really a, a rare opportunity to be able to do uh, a film on somebody who is still alive. Uh, so we have the advantage of Mahoy being able to tell her story in her own words, which is what we'd like to do. Um, so uh, we are in the process of now, uh, it, it, it has three, three phases. Uh, the first phase would be the core of the entire film, which is to capture Amohoy and people closest to her at the monastery and around um, Israel, uh, Jerusalem, uh, because she has in the last few years also become very visible in, in Jerusalem. They had a three-day concert for her a couple of years ago, so a lot of musicians are interested in her music. Um, <clears throat> so we want to interview people um, who are uh, who, whose lives have been in some way touched by her music or by her story. Uh, so we want to do that part first and in Ethiopia. And then the second phase would be able to piece together archival material from Germany, from Italy, where she had spent five years as a prisoner, um, and Switzerland, where she went to school. Um, so that's the second part. I had no idea. So there's layers of her yeah. story. So this yeah. we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg. Yes, yes. So there are layers. And uh, so we, we are uh, definitely going to start shooting um, by end of May, um, May uh, 25th, thereabouts, we will begin. And until the first week of May, we will finish. I'm in June. Uh, we will finish in Jerusalem and then we will do Ethiopia and then we'll go on to the second phase. So um, we're now in the process of uh, raising funds for the documentary. Uh, this will be, in a way, uh, uh, as I said, because it's in three phases, um, our, our fundraising also will happen, you know, again and again. Um, but we're raising now for just the, the Israel segment, the Israel and Ethiopia segment. And we're doing well, but we certainly would like to have more visibility uh, in the community. And uh, we'd like people to share the information, uh, go to the crowd, uh, the, the GoFundMe uh, link and uh, donate money uh, if they could. Uh, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. And you, you already have a film crew that's going to be dedicated to shooting this? Yes, we have a film crew here and we also have a film crew in Israel and we have a film crew in Ethiopia. Those are the three places. With regard to Europe, um, a lot there is a lot of interest by filmmakers, by the way. Um, many, many different filmmakers have approached the foundation or approached me um, with regard to doing her, her story. And it was not until uh, I realized that Amahoy's story would really be best told by Ethiopians uh, to be able to give the full extent of um, 
the, 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 the challenges and the, the triumphs. Because at the heart of our story is also really Ethiopia's own story. Uh, you know, how Ethiopia became more and more uh, part of the world, um, how it uh, joined the modern community. Um, all of that is part of a Mahori story. And when other filmmakers wanted to do her story, they only wanted to do a small segment of it. For instance, there was one filmmaker who wanted to do just the 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 Switzerland part, you know, because the funding was coming from Switzerland, so they wanted to do just that. And for a 93-year-old person who has spent her life, you know, struggling to uh, get her work done in her music and at the same time pursue her calling as a nun, um, I didn't feel that was a fair representation of her story. And it's really that... Uh, experience uh, with that filmmaker that eventually got me to thinking that we should take the the initiative and go ahead and do it. And, and it's an ambitious task, but I believe with God's help, we'll get it done. And uh, here we are. Well, Anna, thank you so much. And, and we wish you the best. And we want to see this documentary come to life. So please be sure to go on etospodcast.com to find out more about the foundation, the documentary, and where you can go to support this project. Thank you, Bamnet. It's a pleasure being here. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Bye.